morning and uh, not this morning, but over the course of this Sunday and the next Sunday, and I had too many of these details in the next Sunday. So we have three Sundays, uh, what, 8, 15, and 22. And what my theme is this year is why Christ came. Why Christ came. Have you ever thought about that? And of course, right away, if I were to ask you that question, many of you would have an answer. And some of you would even be able to cite a scripture passage. I think that's the best of both worlds, right? Where you have an answer and you have a scripture verse that you can base that on. So here's a little thought. You know, you read the New Testament, whether in the Gospels or in the Epistles, and you will find a number of statements that are explicitly relating to answers to that exact question that I just posed. Why did Jesus come? What was the purpose of the coming of Christ? So we are not going to be exhaustive with this because, uh, you know, there are more of these. For example, you could choose something like Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But it goes very well with what we're doing this morning, so in a sense I'm combining those two. Um, in the Sunday school, a reference was made to Galatians uh, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and in the fullness of time, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So there you could find a purpose statement as to why Christ came. I'm not going to be using that one, but we are going to be using three. They'll all be different. And the first one this morning, let me direct your attention to verse number 15, and we'll reread that verse, and then we'll jump into the message after we have a word of prayer. So it says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul adds this comment, of whom I am chief. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done for us. And thank you for this season, Lord, where we have the special opportunity to meditate on these uh, gospel truths that are so meaningful and relevant, not only to us who are saved, but to the entire world. <clears throat> and even though he came unto his own, and his own received him not, we realize that to as many as do receive him, to them he gives power to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name. Thank you for that and pray that you'll just bless us as we begin to inquire into this subject, why Jesus came. And as we look at First Timothy, this broader context, but especially verse number 15, I pray that you would just give, an, give us open hearts. Uh, may we be receptive listeners and hearers. And I pray, Father, that in the final result, Christ would be glorified. And Lord, help me, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For these things I pray now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name, amen. For this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of whom I am chief. That certainly gives us, right off the top, an incredibly wonderful answer into the question, why did Jesus come? And it says right there that he came to save sinners. No one in this room is excluded this morning from the applicability of that message because everyone in this room this morning is a sinner. You say, preacher, that's offensive. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be. I'm just telling you the truth. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As I mentioned to you before, the whole idea behind this track, missing the mark. See, none of us really lives up to the perfection that is God, and therefore, none of us really is a candidate for heaven. The only people who are going to heaven is people who know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, whose sins have been washed away in his precious blood, and who have been clothed in his righteousness and become accepted in the beloved. Those are the only people going to heaven. 
And aren't you glad sitting here this morning that you know that truth and that you've known that truth for some time and you can respond to that because it's the old, old story of Jesus and his love and we're so grateful for this. But this is a fantastic text of scripture. It fits to the Christmas season. It fits in any number of other seasons to portray uh, what the work of Christ has been. And what's interesting about it is Paul gives this particular statement using a particular angle And we've talked about this before. You know, when you think about being a gospel witness, you, generally speaking, it's always nice to have thought, although sometimes the circumstances sort of, you know, are unique and you have to sort of improvise, but all things being equal, it's sort of nice to have a a lead-in. It's sort of nice to have something that you think you might say to introduce this subject, to open uh, the, the conversation. And generally speaking, you kind of do it like Jesus did with the woman at the well, with something that's relatively neutral, but gives you the launching pad to go right into the gospel if the Lord opens those doors. So like with the woman at the well, Jesus said, give me to drink. Well, there wasn't anything offensive in that. She understood she was coming for water. He was hot and thirsty and sitting on the well. So what Paul does, what's Paul's angle here? Paul uses his testimony in order to share the gospel. Because you'll notice that he reflects on his past, He says, who was before, in verse number 13. Who was before? Paul had a past. And he goes into describing what that past is. And if you will, and we are going to refer some, consult the book of Acts, you'll find out that there are three different times in the book of Acts. It's recorded by Luke, of course. But three different times that Paul gives his testimony. He does so in Acts chapter 9. He does so in Acts chapter 22 when he's speaking to the Jews in the temple complex there. He does so in Acts chapter 26 when he's speaking to King Agrippa. So giving your testimony, in other words, finding a way to lead into explaining to people what the Lord has done for you can can many, many, many times be an effective way to share the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here because he contemplates three thoughts. He contemplates his past, And then he tells us in verse 15, which is our actual text, he tells us what his problem is or was. And when we get to the end of this, before we're done with the context, he issues forth into uh, tremendous praise, uh, realizing that Christ has done this for him and granted forgiveness to him. Uh, In spite of his past, in spite of his problem, he's redeemed, he's a child of God, he's a servant of God, and, uh, and he says some other things here, too, with time permitting, that we'll try to look into. So first of all, let's contemplate his past. I know different of us have our heroes in the Bible. I think Brother Bob likes Peter, and I don't dislike Peter. In fact, I defend Peter quite a bit because I often mention that so many preachers stand up and make fun of Peter, and I think you're only making fun of yourself. I think you're silly because Peter is just a, a, a picture of you and me and the mistakes Peter made, we're lucky if we get off the hook with not making twice as many. So I don't want to have to apologize to Peter when I get up to heaven for my preaching. But I guess if I were pressed and had to pick, I would say that Paul, uh, I, I find a fascination and an interest with Paul above all others of the New Testament characters and especially the apostles. And With that, sometimes, if we are not careful, is a tendency. And we don't just do it with Bible figures. I think there are some people, even in in our Christian experience, that we tend to do this with. We set them on a pedestal. 
And it's easy to do that with Paul. We kind of um, put him way up on this exalted plane and don't realize that probably when we do that, Paul would be very uncomfortable with that kind of attention and accolade being given to him, especially in view of his past. Especially Paul had a past. Paul was never proud of that past. In fact, it was always something that stayed with Paul and kept in his life an element of humility, which is so important for you and me. You know, beloved, I think it's possible many, many times for us to be a Christian so long, we forget that God saved us from a horrible life of sin in many cases and certainly an eternity of separation from God in a place called hell. And we become so casual and so... Uh, sometimes even cavalier, uh, with our Christianity that we lose that sense of humility that we really should have. And so communion is a great opportunity for that because what are we doing here in communion this morning? We have these elements which are symbols of his body and blood which he had to give and sacrifice for us because we are hell-bent lost sinners and need to be saved. And that reminder is very salutary for us lest we go around and think that we're better than other people that may not have experienced the grace of God in their lives at, up until this point. So what was Paul's past? Well, you'll notice in verse number 13, which is the key verse he uses to describe this, he calls himself three things. And we want to pause just to look at these for a few moments. What does he say? First of all, he says, who was before, what's the first word? A blasphemer. Wow. Think about that for a moment. Now, you don't have to put your hand up because I'm not about embarrassing anybody. But... Anybody think back on to a past before you knew Jesus Christ as personal Savior where you were a blasphemer? I'll tell you what, I'm glad to be forgiven for that kind of thing. And this is becoming unbelievably bad in society today where people just constantly, um, I'm just amazed at the types of things that people say. And, you know, you do your best, but I mean, it's just horrendous the amount of profanity and blasphemy what does blasphemy really mean? Well, you're combining two words, and the word femeo at the end of the word means to say. So this is a sin of the speech, right? And blopto at the front means to, to hurt, to strike someone in such a way as to hurt them. And so we can certainly hurt people with our words. And truthfully, it's hurts God when we don't respect and give the honor and recognition to his name that it deserves. Even if you think about the uh, pattern prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray, sometimes we call it the Lord's Prayer. What was the very first thing in that? Our Father which? Art in heaven. And the very next thing, hallowed, or the idea is let thy name be sanctified. God wants us to respect him and to acknowledge him for who he is, and God does not want us to speak irreverently of him or certainly to use his name in vain. Well, Paul was certainly doing that, but with a, a little bit of a difference in how we sometimes think about it. Um, probably it would be good to have something, your fingers or whatever, to mark your place here because we will come back. But I mentioned these times when Paul gives his testimony. So I want to refer, first of all, to Acts chapter 26. I want to show you something he says to Agrippa and, and when he's giving his testimony here. And he says in verse number 9, now we will come back and read more of this in a moment, but right now I just want you to see verse number 9. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary 
to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So here's a question. Why was it that Paul was so dead set against the name of Jesus of Nazareth? Because that's what he's telling us. And when we look back then to other places, uh, this is not so much Paul going around and using the name of Jesus in profanity as people sometimes do that today. But this is Paul actually being convinced that what he was saying about Jesus was true. And the way you understand this, I think, is as you go back to the book of Isaiah, and the prophet puts this well for us. Let me give this one for you. If you want to turn that, you're welcome to do that. But this is in Isaiah 53. And it helps us to understand exactly where Paul was coming from and why he said what he did and acted the way he did toward Christ and toward Christians. In verse 4, Surely he did hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, have you ever pondered or stopped to think long enough what that really means? What he means to say is, is that he regarded Jesus as an imposter. He regarded Jesus as the blasphemer. He felt that Jesus was a false contender and was not the Messiah, and that what happened on the cross of Calvary he merited because of his own false claims. He would have regarded Christ as a blasphemer. So when Paul took the position he did and did many things and said many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, that's why he did that. He didn't do it out of irreverence. He didn't do it as people do today. He did it because he was under a wrong impression. And he tells us this later when he says, For this cause I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. He simply didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. And you know, beloved, it sets up an interesting thing. There's really no middle ground about Jesus. He either is who he said he is, or he's a a liar, a fraud, and a charlatan. There's no middle ground. All people try to come along and salve their conscience by saying, well, I believe that Jesus was a good man. Well, I don't if he's not the Son of God. He made too many scurrilous and false claims if he's not exactly who he says he is. But he is, I assure you of that. And Paul found that out. But he reflects back on that. He wasn't proud of it. He felt badly for all the times that he had persecuted Christians, which leads us to the next. So he put this into action, not only in terms of what he said, but in terms of being a type A personality and being an incredibly zealous person, right? We know this was a part of his personality, going to come out in a moment when we look at this last term. But he then put this into action by going way above and beyond what any normal person would do because he persecuted the Christians and even went to the high priest to get letters of authority to follow them all the way to Damascus. He was doing his best to try to stamp out this sect called the Way because they were committed to to truth that was not so, that it was false. That was Paul's opinion. So back in the book of Acts, now let's move to chapter 22. Let's see. When he's talking to the Jews, giving his testimony to the Jews when uh, he was arrested there in the temple, look what he says in verse 4 of chapter 22. Just to hear it from his own mouth. He says, and I persecuted this way, even unto the death. Wow. How would you like to have that on your conscience? 
But that's what he's saying. That's what I say. I think Paul would be uncomfortable with the pedestal that some of us put him up on. It's true that he was probably the greatest missionary that the Church of Jesus Christ ever produced. We, 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 I would say that without fear of Paul being upset. But Paul was not proud of these events that took place in his life. And it went with him. Binding, he says, and delivering into prison both men and women. As also the high priest doth bear me witness and all the estate of the elders from whom I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Well, he didn't have to do that. He could have had his beliefs, but he was zealous. He went far beyond. Later in the chapter, look at verse number 19. It says, And I said, Lord, they know how I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And I don't think he ever got away from that one. I think from different statements that he makes, I think that plagued his conscience. I think he saw something in Stephen that day that began that process of doubt in his mind. These firmly held beliefs that Jesus was an imposter, that Jesus was a blasphemer, yet to see Stephen as he was, to see Stephen who could look up into heaven and see Jesus not sitting at the right hand of the Father, but standing as if to welcome his first martyr and to say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, it did something to him. I think he began to doubt himself that very day. But he had all of this in his past. And then, again, we have to hasten, but if you go back to our text, he calls himself injurious. And uh, normally speaking, um, well, see, the thing of it is, injurious is an adjective, and, and certainly we've read, read enough to know that he was injurious. But this particular word is a noun, and so sometimes adjectives, we, we might say if we were going to bring this out, an injurious person. But it still doesn't bring out all the meaning that's involved in this word, because this is actually the word in the original that we get our English word hubris from. Do you know that word? H-U-B-R-I-S. I used to think that was a 50-cent word. And a lot of people didn't use the word hubris. But more and more now, you see that word used, and you actually see it, uh, examples of it, and I think that's why uh, more people are using that word. When you read uh, articles, news articles and so forth, I think that it is such an apt word, it's such an accurate word to describe what we're seeing so much of in today's society that people are using the word. So I'm glad if I can kind of give a little background on it and tell you what this is because this is exactly what is descriptive of Paul. Because hubris, here's a dictionary definition of hubris. Hubris is wanton arrogance arising from overbearing pride or passion. Now think about that because you've got a couple elements there. You've got that overbearing arrogance or pride that comes from this sanctimonious, self-righteous, stuck-up belief that you're right and others are wrong. 
But then you combine that with this pride and this zeal, this passion, and you've got Paul. That's a, that's a deadly combination, but I will say this. It's kind of one of those combinations that if you were looking and thinking to yourself as a believer and watching Paul, you'd say, wow, if you could ever get that guy saved, he'd make a dynamic Christian, and you would be right. Because if you can take those things and harness them and bring them under control, those elements of his personality that were unsavory and negative at this point were also the elements that the Lord used to make him so effective in what he did later when that pride was tamed, but that passion that gripped him. Uh, we see examples of this. I, let me illustrate this for you. I, sometimes I, I, I hate thinking that someone might think I'm trying to be political because I'm really not. But as I say, you see so much of this now and you think to yourself, no wonder people writing news articles are saying, uh, describing what we're seeing as hubris. Now, I don't know if you've watched much of it. I don't watch much of it because it's depressing to me. But all this impeachment stuff. So this week they trotted out these law professors in the hearing on, what was it, Monday? And, and so supposedly now we're going to educate the public and, 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 and get everybody on board this thing so we understand why we're doing this and why this is our constitutional duty. Well, good night. I mean, if you're going to talk about a stacked deck, the Democrats picked three of them, three of the four. The Republicans only got to pick one. The one the Republicans picked kind of was the only one worth listening to. But the one that got all the headlines was that woman. Did you remember seeing this? And uh, her name was Pamela Carlin, and she is a Stanford law professor and constitutional scholar. Now, when, when I see this kind of thing, I think to myself, and this is where our kids are going. This is what, these are the people that by and large, not completely, but by and large, these are the people who are teaching in these institutions. And this is the woman that they played a clips later in the week after the incident that I'm going to tell you took place where she showed how, and she was proud of it, talking about the fact that she had to pass in front of a, one of the buildings that Trump owned. And so she crossed the street because she just, she just couldn't bear walking in front of this building. Oh, so much for objectivity. So they asked her a question in the proceedings about what the difference is between the British and the Americans, where the British have a king and America has a president. Now, do you really think President Trump thinks he's a king? You don't have to answer, but I'm just thinking to myself, this is part of their angle, you know. And her way of explaining it she says, the Constitution can, says there can be no titles of nobility. So while the president, and this is, this is where it went way wrong. So while the president can name his son baron, he can't make him a baron. That's a problem to me. Leave a 13-year-old kid out of it. If you can't do any better than to slur a 13-year-old kid and bring him in, but all it does is just reflect that hubris, that incredible smug self-righteousness that I know the law, I know the Constitution, I'm right, but mixed with that passion, that dislike 
of Trump that would be so strong that you can't pass by one of his properties, you've got to walk across the street. So I, it doesn't surprise me that we're, we're seeing that word hubris because it's really hard to go out of the way and find something better to describe what we're seeing. And I'm sorry that has to be a political illustration, um, but it, it, it just, we see it. We're seeing it on every hand. But Paul was that type of person. It's not a flattering picture I just painted for you folks. But you know something? Everybody has a past. I have one, you have one. And aren't you glad it can be forgiven? Amen. Wow. I can't imagine what it would be to have just your sins forgiven today, but your past wasn't taken care of. That wouldn't be a complete salvation, would it? Did you know R.A. Torrey, whom we kind of know well as an evangelist, R.A. Torrey had a past. He had a past of, of terrible unbelief. Gave his mother the fits. I mean, he just... Didn't want to believe anything that he'd been raised to believe. And I don't have time to tell you the whole story this morning, but eventually he came to the end of himself. I think her prayers were instrumental in that. And, of course, you, you know where he turned out, but he had a past. I told you before, C.I. Schofield had a past. He was a drunkard. Paul had a past. He was a blasphemer. He persecuted the church. You imagine what it must have been like when he heard those words, no wonder he was stricken down. No wonder he was converted. When Jesus said, who, and when he said, who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. All those people that he did those things to, that he thought he was being righteous in, and all of a sudden he realized that Jesus took that personally because they are his body. And inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, it goes both ways, beloved, ye have done it unto me. Paul had a problem. That's our second thought here this morning. If you want one word to capture it, the reason that Paul did all these things was because he was a sinner. And everyone doesn't sin alike, but all alike are sinners. So Paul had his own particular personality. It led him off into these to, to the sins that comprised the unique person who was Paul. But Paul did it for the simple reason that you and I do the same things we do, whatever is our past and whatever we've been guilty of. The reason that we do those things is because we're sinners. Recently, I listened to a Sunday school class, and the gentleman was trying to explain, well, now, you know, on the horizontal plane, man's relationship, what you know, how do we uh, get to understand this? And, and what's the problem? And, you, well, I, I need to get to know this person. You ask them all these questions, you know, and so forth. And I kept thinking, yeah, I guess on the psychological level, I see where you're coming from, but I don't need somebody to, I don't have to interview somebody for half an hour to know what the problem is. I know before I ever meet them what the problem is. I think getting to know someone can help you maybe as you approach them. But really, beloved, the Bible gives us the answers. Paul had a problem. His problem was sin. I have a problem. That problem is sin. You have a problem. That problem is sin. Each one of us has a past because humanity has a past. Wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And so death has passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Every person here has a past. 
Humanity has a past, and the problem is sin. It's been true ever since Adam sinned in the garden. And just as soon as you and I, who are born with sin natures, are old enough to make choices, we manifest the truth of that by doing those things ourselves. So we're all different. We don't all sin alike. We're all like sinners. But that was Paul's problem, just as that's the problem that you and I have. But Paul adds something and calls himself, of whom I am chief. Paul says he's the chiefest of sinners. But, you know, in effect, um, while we can certainly appreciate Paul's humility, and I think he really meant this when he said this, it does teach us that there are some people who are bigger sinners, I guess, for, for lack of a better way to say it. They have more, more guilt and more uh, sins that they've engaged in than other people. At the end of the day, it's a moot point, I'm telling you, because it's like ten guys on death row, every one of them sentenced to be executed, and one guy looking at another guy and say, well, at least I didn't shoot anybody. Well, great. Doesn't matter. I guess it really means, and I think you can find other verses to support this, so I maybe you should say it does mean, that there are, there are degrees of punishment in hell, but to me, I, you know, once you're there, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what, how, how that works. Just, just, just to have one finger inside the door. From what I can understand from the Bible, I don't even want to go there. So all of this leads Paul when he contemplates the mercy and grace that he's been shown. By the way, what are the answers? Mercy and grace. Verse 13, he says, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And then in the next verse, he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Down a little bit later in the passage, he mentions mercy again. Verse 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlasting life. Somewhere between the extremes of where Paul was, because if Paul tells us that he was the chiefest of sinners and then became the chiefest of servants, somewhere in there you and I fall. Somewhere between those two extremes. But to know that we have been saved, to know that there's a gospel, to know that there's mercy, God not giving us what we deserve. Wow. God not giving us what we deserve. And to know that there is grace, God giving us what we don't deserve, which is eternal life, a home in heaven, and the, the impeccable, bulletproof righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Hey, Paul can't contain himself. He's got to give us one of those doxologies that he so often does. Of course, it comes to a head in verse number 17. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's the only real thing you can respond to the gospel once you're, you've been saved and you know you're saved and you think back a little bit on your past and communion, as I said, is a tremendous help in that. All we can do is praise God. And thank him for all that he's done for us in providing the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he thinks that Jesus, I'm having to cut some of this a little bit, but when he thinks, Paul that is, when Paul is thinking, Jesus has come to save people like he is. He can't contain his gratitude. He first has to express thanks for God's mercy and then for God's grace. 
And ultimately, it culminates, as I say, in this beautiful benediction, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory and honor forever and ever. That's right where we need to be this morning. Think about it. You know, this text, I wanted to tell you a little something about it before we finish this morning, but this text is illustrious. And so we're going to give a few illustrations from it since it is illustrious. Did you know that this particular, particular text has been instrumental in the salvation of any number of people? You can only imagine. But I want to tell you about two this morning. One name you may know, the other I suspect you won't know, but both of them are English martyrs from the early part of the 16th century. You know Bloody Mary time? Their stories are remarkable, so I think you'll enjoy hearing them. The first is a man by the name of Thomas Bilney. Who in the world is Thomas Bilney? That's the one that you probably haven't heard about. Well, Thomas Bilney was a, known as Little Bilney. And the reason he was known as Little Bilney was because he was like Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. He was short of stature. But Bilney was at Cambridge and... Somehow, when came, well, while he was at Cambridge, two things happened in his life. One was he, was he was beginning to experience this, for lack of a better description, this vague feeling of emptiness, that somehow the religion as he knew it, the religion that he was studying, it left him empty, it didn't satisfy him, it didn't meet his needs. He wasn't quite sure how to codify that, how to explain it, how to get a handle on it, but he was experiencing that. Well, at the same time came a visit to Cambridge um, and to England, really, of a man by the name of Desiderius Erasmus. You may know that name. Erasmus was probably the leading Renaissance scholar of the day. And when he came to Cambridge, Bilney listened to him, and Bilney thought, he's got something we don't have. And so Bilney right away determined that he was going to get a hold of every line, everything that he possibly could that... Erasmus had written, well, it so turned out that the thing that he got a hold of that was so instrumental in his life was Erasmus' translation of the New Testament into Latin. And some people who are students and scholars might appreciate this next statement, but Bilney got the New Testament just because, I mean, he didn't really know anything about the Bible. He didn't really know the importance of what he was getting. He got it because it was Erasmus. He got it because it was Erasmus Latin, and he, he, was, he was taken with Erasmus, and that's why he got it. But, you know, God is in all these things that just seem to happen by chance. And as Bilney was going along and looking at this, ultimately God directed his attention to this verse in the Scripture. He came to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. I'm going to let him tell it to you in his own words. He says, My soul was sick. And I longed for peace, but nowhere could I find it. I went to the priests. Now, remember you heard this because he's going to repeat it to someone else in a moment. He said, I went to the priests and they appointed me penances and pilgrimages. Yet by these, my poor sick soul was nothing profited. But at last I heard of Jesus. It was then when first the New Testament was set forth by Erasmus that light came. I bought the book being drawn thereto rather by the Latin than by the word of God. For at that time I knew not that the word of, what the word of God meant. 
And on the first reading of it, I well remember, I chanced, that's our way of speaking, I chanced upon these words, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That one sentence through God's inward working did so lift up my poor bruised spirit that the very bones within me leaped for joy and gladness. It was as if after a long dark night, day had suddenly broke. Boy, that's inspirational, isn't it? To see what God can do. Generating that feeling of emptiness in his heart and then positioning him to come right to the verse that would provide the answer. All the while taking advantage of, he didn't even know anything except he just wanted the thing because Erasmus had it. Well, the second person comes into contact with Bilney, and this is the name you might know because this man is Hugh Latimer. Latimer was originally a papist. He was originally Roman Catholic. And, but he was at Cambridge at the same time, and he was quite a preacher, actually. And Bilney heard him, and it was what I had said to you earlier. It was one of those cases and points where Bilney heard him, and this guy has something to him. He doesn't quite have the truth, but he, he's got something to him. If only, if only he would become a Christian, if only he would be saved. And he began to pray that way. Here's what he prayed. He said, O oh God, I am but little Bilney, and shall never do anything great for thee, but give me the soul of that man, Hugh Latimer, and what wonders he shall do in thy most holy name. The question is, how is he going to get a witness to him? Now, talking about having an entree planned, you'll have to smile at this. So at the service, Latimer has just finished, steps down from the pulpit. Bilney is close enough that when Latimer walks by, his priestly robes brush up against Bilney. Bilney, in a moment of inspiration, seizes the opportunity and says to Latimer, Prithee, Father Latimer, may I confess my soul to thee? And, of course, immediately Latimer took him aside into a quiet place, and the most incredible thing unfolded in that room. Bilney fell at Latimer's knees and began to pour out his heart and soul and telling him his story of what had happened. Remember I said about Paul using his story to give his testimony. And he says in his words, there it stood. He tells about the New Testament. He tells about finding the verse. He tells about those vague feelings of emptiness. And then he tells Latimer, there it stood, he says, tears standing in his eyes. The very word I wanted, it seemed to be written in letters of light. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh, Father Latimer, he cries. I went to the priests and they pointed me to broken cisterns and that held no water and only mocked my thirst. I bore the load of my sins until my soul was crushed underneath the burden. And when I saw that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, and now being justified by faith, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Latimer was blown away. 
He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say because coincidentally, the same process was taking place in his own heart and mind. He too had been feeling those feelings, those vague, nondescript feelings of emptiness, not quite sure why the religion that he preached and was engaged in didn't satisfy him. And it's like God brought Bilney there with just the message and just the experience and just the words. And what happens? Latimer falls to his knees right beside Bilney. And Bilney is ready. He pulls out the New Testament that he has. He opens it to the very place, shows it to him. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Latimer's eyes were opened. You know this man that I'm telling you about? If I were to say the other name that you might know, would you remember him? Ridley, Bishop Ridley. The two are let out because already Ridley, but now Latimer becomes a proponent of the very Reformation truths that he had been against before, sort of like the Apostle Paul. Turns all of those gifts into the promotion of those truths. They're let out that day to be executed. They're led to the, to the wood where the torch will be placed to light them on fire. And it's Latimer who utters those words that have echoed down through time. When he turned to Ridley and he said, play the man, Ridley, for we shall this day, my Lord, light such a candle in England as shall never be extinguished. Imagine, simple words. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. And whether that's your verse or another verse, the important thing is that you know Jesus as your Savior. So in a moment, we're going to have communion. And I just want to be clear on this. Everyone here, you don't need to be a member of the church, but you do need to know Jesus as your personal Savior. And beyond that, I think that the Bible does say, say to us that let every man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So it would be well as uh, we distribute the elements, there'll be some time and the instruments will be playing, that each of us takes just a few moments to search his heart and we want to be right with God insofar as it's humanly possible for us to be right and to know it. Let's ask God to make us clean and right so that we come in a worthy manner and we honor Jesus by remembering his death till he comes. Let's pray. And while I pray, I'm just going to ask if the men will come. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness, all the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for the great truths we've been able to celebrate this morning and plug them right on into Christmas and realize this is the season of the year when all the crossroads of time met. And Jesus came into the world to do this very thing, to die for sinners and thank you that in these elements, these symbols, the, the, the bread being the symbol of his broken body, the blood being a symbol of his shed blood, that all of these things portray that message to us. And by these, we do show the Lord's death till he comes. So bless us, I pray. Encourage us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen.